coming up in just a moment. It's the City Club of Idaho Falls featuring Dr. Thomas L. Les Purse, President Emeritus of Evergreen State College, a former city councilman and mayor of Pocatello, in fact being the first African-American elected official in the state of Idaho, as well as a musician. It's coming up in just a few moments as we begin just a few minutes before 7 o'clock this evening because of the length of tonight's City Club Forum. It's Black History Month, and all month long, we're shining a spotlight on black musical figures who have made enduring contributions to classical music. I'm Megan Oglesby from American Public Media. We've all studied in school prominent American abolitionist, author, and orator Frederick Douglass. Douglass excelled in many things. Did you know that Frederick Douglass was a violin player? While traveling in Ireland, he fell in love with Irish music, so he purchased a violin and taught himself to play. Frederick played his violin for visiting guests and for his grandchildren after dinner and before their bedtime. This, no doubt, strongly influenced his grandson, Joseph Douglas. Joseph went on to have a career in classical music that spanned over three decades. He achieved not one, but several firsts. Joseph Douglas was the first black concert violinist to achieve national recognition. He was the first black violinist to be engaged on an international tour. And in 1914, Joseph Douglas became the first violinist of any race to record music for the Victor Talking Machine Company. You might also know them as Victrola. The defining moment that launched his career forward came in 1893 when he was just 22 years old. Joseph Douglas performed at the Chicago World's Fair. He shared the lineup that day with poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar. After that performance, the black press began calling him, quote, the most talented violinist of the race. Throughout his musical career, Douglas had regularly scheduled appearances at the White House during the administrations of four different presidents. On top of his performance career, Douglas was an educator and a conductor, too. He had tenured positions at both Howard University in Washington and the Colored Music School in New York. Joseph Douglas not only traveled the world sharing his gift of music, he also made time to cultivate the blossoming talent of those who came after him. On today's Spotlight and other notables, visit our website. Go to yourclassical.org slash performance today and look for us on social media. Recorded on February 23rd, Dr. Thomas Les Purse. He speaks on the topic, Reweaving the Social Fabric of America. Greetings to everybody. Glad you could all be here today. Uh, for what promises to be an exciting and very informative program. It's, uh, it's a reality that we, and I think we all acknowledge that American democracy faces grave challenges. Uh, we've never seen quite the, the gap 
when it comes to income. Income inequality is a major issue confronting America and define uh, many attempted solutions. We have an ongoing problem with voter suppression. Racism, which has been the scourge of American history, is, uh, is, continues to be a major problem for the United States. We fight other issues, gender discrimination, for example. We have, as we all know, in light of the tragedy in Florida, an ongoing problem with mass gun violence. So America has challenges internally. We have challenges uh, abroad. Our major adversary, Russia, interfered with the 2016 election, and as a consequence, we have a special prosecutor conducting a very intensive uh, investigation into its meddling and its impact on the United States. So all around us, ladies and gentlemen, we see that our great American democracy is in one way or another under siege. Today, we're very fortunate to have a nationally acclaimed leader on democracy uh, share some ideas with us about various strategies for strengthening the fabric of our great American democracy. And uh, for many of you, this will strike you as a, as a reunion because our guest today, uh, Dr. Thomas Les Peirce, uh, it grew up in Pocatello, a member of one of Idaho's most highly acclaimed families for its long-term commitment to promoting civil rights here in the state. Uh, the great matriarch of that family is sitting right here with us today, Idaho Purse, uh, who is just 91 years young, uh, going strong, it's amazing. And, and if you allow a personal note, it wasn't too long ago after I came to Idaho State University that Idaho enrolled in my American government class, and it was so fun to have her in there, asking great questions, challenging me at every turn, keeping me honest, and I told her then, well, that's a full-time job, Idaho. <laughs> the Purse family, uh, as I say, is one of Idaho's most distinguished families Les Purse is the third generation Idahoan. The family arrived in Idaho in the early 1900s. Uh, Dr. Purse uh, holds three degrees, including a doctorate at Idaho State University. Uh, he, he has led a very distinguished life in the realms of public service, governmental service, academic service. Let me share a, a few tidbits from his very distinguished resume. He was, in fact, the director of the Idaho Department of Administration and also subsequently the director of the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare under the late great Governor John Evans. Uh, from there, uh, he served in a very senior administrative position at both Idaho State University and Washington State University, not content to uh, and his academic career or his administrative service for the academy. He then went on to become president of Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, where he served for 17 years. By all accounts, somebody serving in a presidency that long is, in fact, a remarkable record. Even under the Constitution of the United States, we limit our presidents to two terms. Uh, Les recently retired as President Emeritus in 2015. 
Uh, and he continues to, to travel widely to be able to have the opportunity to advance strategies for improving the fabric of our democracy. He's very much interested in promoting uh, social justice. And, and he is, in fact, a highly acclaimed speaker and musician. And I think I'm going to prevail upon him at the end of our program today to give us a little song or two. So ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're in for a very special treat. Please join me in welcoming to the podium of the City Club of Idaho Falls, an old friend and colleague, Dr. Thomas Les Purse. Wow. After that introduction, I can't wait to hear what I have to say. <laughs> oh, it's, it's um, a real delight to, and an honor to be um, back home. And uh, boy, I drove through Idaho Falls and didn't recognize it. It's been so long and it's just grown so much. Um, but it's nice to be back and to see so many wonderful friends friends from college and friends that were colleagues at ISU. Um, but particularly, I have to recognize a friend of mine. He's been a friend of mine, a dear friend, for over 40 years. An Idaho Falls native, Diane Plastino Graves, and her husband, Ron, and her mother, Margaret, and her sister, Paula, that are back at the table over here. And in November, Margaret celebrated her 100th birthday, everyone. Now, you talk about Idaho history and about this part of the state, and Margaret has the distinction of being a pioneer in the health care area in Bonneville County and in southeastern Idaho, having served as the county nurse back in the old days of the health system. And then, as we got into the era of Medicare, she became um, the home health nurse, the first one in southeastern Idaho. So Bonneville County in southeastern Idaho, we have a pioneer in the healthcare area and a real contributor to this community. Will you all join me in welcoming the Plastino family? Will you all please stand up? Well, David took the took my fire away to, in, uh, as always happened when, whenever Idaho purse is in the room. But what can I say? Um, Idaho, my mom is an extraordinary person, um, a community activist. Uh, one of the wonderful memories I have of my mother, when you talk about people that, were, that says age is nothing but a number, and my, name, my number is not listed, that's her motto. <laughs> At almost 80, she headed up to the Center for Disease Control, the first major work that was done in regard to HIV prevention. And for over a decade, continued in that role, well into her 80s. 
and one of my memories is going into her bedroom one morning and having a big box sitting there, and it was full of red, blue, yellow condoms sitting there. Mom, what is this? Tommy, it's part of the education program for AIDS. Everyone, would you welcome and, and acknowledge Idaho person again? Mom, would you stand up? After I retired as president of Evergreen, I'd always had a deep love and involvement in music. And almost three years ago when I retired and I began to try to think about what I wanted to do with my time, I knew it had to involve my expression through music, through stories, as well as what I had learned as an educator, having seen 20,000 students walk across the podium at Evergreen and give them their diplomas, and then having the good fortune of being able to, as only a, a president or a senior person can at a university that has some longevity, to see them grow and mature and do wonderful things in the world and to come back. So that has really been a blessing for me. So I think of myself as an educator and an artist because of that. And so today, as I share my thoughts with you about our democracy and the social fabric of that. Uh, I want to have an opportunity also to tell the stories that are the most important stories that all of us have. And those are the stories that shape our lives and who we are and how we become. Because for each one of us, those stories that our grandparents, our parents, our friends, told about their lives and who they were and therefore who you are or who you are likely to become is a very important part of the narrative. And of course, it's a very, very important part of the narrative given the diversity of this country and who we are. And until the past year was my belief that our country and the world were making good progress in our quest for human justice and the elimination of prejudice and racism. But I have never had any illusions about the insidiousness of racism and the tenacity of prejudice and hate. After all, my parents, John and Idaho Purse, have always been committed civil rights leaders here in Idaho. They join in the work of establishing uh, the Idaho Human Rights Commission and the Idaho Fair Housing Agency. They were also founding members of the Northwest Coalition against malicious harassment that helped defeat the white supremacist Aryan nation. My mother tells a story of entering the Aryan nation compound after they were defeated in their legal battles. The property and all of the possessions had been forfeit on the order of the court. All of their personal property, their cars, their clothes, their books, artwork, tiles, soap, were all in place waiting for their owners to return. The items were so everyday, so commonplace, that she found it hard to reconcile those things with the terrible hatred and racism of their owners. She said that she could feel the hatred in the rooms and in the hallways. My mother 
entered that compound side by side with two of the greatest warriors for justice in the state of Idaho, the former director of the Human Rights Commission, Marilyn Schuler, and the founder of the Coalition Against Malicious Harassment, Father Bill Wasmuth. I am reminded today, as I stand here, of all the Idahoans in the past four decades who have stood for human rights, civil rights, and who have rode out to meet the evil of rights, white supremacists and have helped establish the laws and institutions for fairness and justice that stand today. People who have the vision, the courage, the moral compass to recognize that racism, discrimination, homophobia, cultural bias are cancers that will unravel the social fabric of a nation. People who I have known through these years been honored to know, like Hiro Shiyasaki of Blackfoot, Marilyn Schuler of Boise, Father Bill Wasmuth of Craigmont, Ida Hawkins of Coeur d'Alene, Governor Cecil Andrus of Orfino, Senator Frank Church of Boise, Ben Plastino of Idaho Falls, Jess Perrain of Boise, Governor John Evans of Malad, John and Idaho Purse of Pocatello, Sue Rents of Boise, Governor Phil Bat of Wilder, Glenn Sealander of Boise, Liz Sullivan of Moscow, Lou Reed of Coeur d'Alene, Mamie Oliver of Boise, Bernie Eschiff of Fort Hall, Tony Stewart of Coeur d'Alene, and Senator Mike Mitchell of Lewiston, and so many others and organizations like the NAACP and the Coeur d'Alene, um, the Kootenai County Task Force, and the Idaho Legal Aid Service, all that contributed so much to what we have today. These people and groups took action and proved that action could make a difference. They each did their part to make a more just and fair society and this state is better off because of them. Today, we, face, we are faced with social, political, and cultural currents that seem to run counter to our long-espoused American ideals that all people are created equal, that there are inalienable rights, and that to realize these rights, we need a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. Over time, these American ideals have been embraced by more and more nations. And for a long time, those ideals reflected our desire and expectation for a more equitable, progressive world that was grounded in the principles of equity and justice. Today, it seems, our American ideals are under attack. We are confronted with a growing division in our vision of the American dream and who has the right to sit at the great American tent of democracy. And there is even a division over whether it's worthwhile to share those ideals with other people around the world. There are those who embrace corrosive forms of nationalism, defined, as Yanti Applebaum says, of blood and soil, culture and tradition 
an America defined by culture and borders and narrow interests and enemies. This new nationalism tears at the fabric of our geographically, economically, and ethnically diverse America. This new nationalism says no to immigrants, no to those who see the continued evolution of our country as good, no to those who celebrate our common world humanity. As David Brooks wrote recently, they tell populist stories that put each person in a certain box. They assert that the way you see the world is determined by your single tribal identity. They describe society as a battlefield with one group here and another group there. In so doing, they cultivate mistrust, division, and, and, and an emotional frozenness. This surprisingly virulent reaction from the new nationalists, this fear of strangers, is nothing new to the American history. This is nothing new in our American history. The last great wave of immigration produced a bitter backlash with the Chinese Exclusion Acts of 1882 and the return in the 1920s of the Ku Klux Klan which not only targeted blacks, Catholics, Jews, but other immigrants as well, mainly from Southern and Eastern Europe. Today, tensions are once again sharpened by the changing profile of the younger generation of Americans and by those who would enter our borders. Not only are our racial and ethnic and religious backgrounds more varied, their place in the modern post-industrial economy is unclear, but the need to ensure that they become well-educated, contributing members of our society should be very clear. Their success will be the long-term economic necessity for this country. The reality is, as a nation, we face a generation gap, not just of age, but also of color as well. The baby boomers, of whom I'm one, are predominantly white, 75%. And as we leave the tax-paying labor force over the next 17 years, a new generation of Asian, Latino, and African Americans must be there to take our place in the economy as workers, as taxpayers, not only will their tax support our Social Security and our Medicaid, but they will, we will need them to be our doctors, our nurses, our ministers, our mechanics, our nursing home administrators, everyone. <laughs> but it's not just about the financial well-being of our society. Like all the Americans who came before them, this new generation, including the new immigrants, will enrich our culture, our arts, our language, our food, our American stories in ways we cannot even imagine. So we are a nation that faces dramatic changes within its borders and without. And how we answer the questions, what are we going to become? Who are we? How do the newcomers and the other minorities fit in? How will this country handle it is critical. To answer those questions, we must recognize that despite the efforts of some, 
we will continue to live in a world that is inextricably interconnected financially, politically, and socially. This joining together of our global community will continue to make us more dependent on each other as global citizens. Therefore, it is of course essential that we do more to understand and appreciate different languages, cultures, values, traditions, and we do that by beginning as we have and what you do with this organization, build dialogue strategically within our local communities. Today we talk about issues of race, about political division, global tri growing tribalism, and the inability to see the commonalities of all of us as human beings and as citizens of this democracy. Each community must figure out a way to organize ways for diverse people to become involved in these conversations in new ways. Book groups, church groups, community organizations, based on many writings we can learn new ideas and concepts and we must start with people face to face and very thoughtfully figure out how to include new people that haven't been at the table with us in the past. As an educator, I am convinced that every town, city, every state must make a long-term commitment to the education of our children. There are deep wounds in our system that must be healed. Because of institutional racism, black public school preschoolers are almost four times more likely to be suspended than white preschoolers. And black and Latino children are more likely than white, stu white students to be suspended from school for the same behavior. More than 60 years ago, after Brown versus the Board of Education, the act that outlawed segregation in our schools, white neighborhoods that have become resegregated are trying to break away from integrated school systems to form their own districts in many parts of our country. First, we must ensure that all children start school prepared to learn. To do that, we must increase, not decrease, access to quality pre- and postnatal health care for all kids. We must increase, not decrease, child nutrition programs. We must ensure that every preschooler has access to quality daycare and early childhood education. We must ensure that when our young people graduate from high school, that they are prepared to enter the, world, the workforce, college, are to obtain a vocational technical education. We must strengthen and ensure the diversity of teachers who will serve as role models for these young people. For all of us, these children are our future. They operate our businesses, educate our grandchildren, protect our shores, teach in our universities, and they will be on the front line facing the next cycle of challenges to our humanity and to our freedom and to this earth. But in a more personal sense, we must make each make our own commitment to understand and to become involved with cultures new to us in ways that sends a message that each of us are a part of a community interested in knowing and understanding those 
that bring a new rich cultural experience into our community, into our state, into our country. We must believe and act on the beliefs of the belief that, as Dr. King said, the agony of the poor diminished the rich, and the salvation of the weak enriched the strong. We are inevitably our brother's keepers because of our interrelated structure of our existence. It's easy for us to be shaken by the new open declaration of those that would divide us, scapegoat the poor, the newcomers, the Muslims, the Jews, anyone who looks or sounds, dresses differently. It's heartbreaking to think that we must refight old battles that we thought were long settled. But we've come to a time in this country and the world when we must each redouble our efforts, develop new partnerships with like-minded people committed to social justice, expand how we use media and the next for the next techno for, and the new technology to embrace the next generation. They are our future and this country's future. To open our minds and hearts to embrace inclusiveness, not exclusiveness, and to widen the reach of our community commitment to the ideals of our democracy. I believe what Dr. King said, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. But I've come to believe that it does not bend on its own. It took people like Dr. King and all of those brave Idaho citizens I noted before to reach up and who reached up and bent the ark a decade ago. And that, my friends, is my call for us, action for us today. That we all find the courage of the generation before. That you, me, parents, teachers, coaches, clergy, lawmakers, grocery clerks, reach up together and bend and lend our weight to the crucial work of bending the arc of the moral universe towards justice, fairness, and a welcoming America. Because I believe that our democracy depends on it. And as Dr. King said, in the end, we'll remember not the words of our enemy, but the silence of our friends. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Les, Dr. Purse. Thank you so much for those compelling and indeed stirring remarks, as you can judge by the reaction Thank from you. your very large audience here. Your remarks were very well received, uh, and they're eager to hear more in the way of suggestions as to how we can uh, maintain the fabric of democracy and begin to address some of the ills that confront our society. We have a number of, of really excellent questions here that that I want to share with you. 
Let's go back to one of those uh, wonderful lines uh, earlier in your remarks when you talked about the importance of immigration, the United States having welcoming arms to all people. Now, immigration, as you know, is a, is a subject of tremendous debate and controversy. Would you have some general ideas, some general programs or policies that, that you would like to promote as a means of um, promoting the openness of America to people throughout the world? And what do you think about the idea of everybody being welcome as opposed to a merit-based uh, immigration policy which is touted uh, by President Trump? Yeah, well, you know, we've stated this in such a common sense. You know, we're, we're a country of, of immigrants. I mean, it's the reality of our history. And anyone that is educated, that knows our history, and loves it and understands all of it, from the example I gave of the Exclusion Acts and that history, and the reaction that we've had with the Ku Klux Klan and other groups about others, and how easy it is politically for us to scare ourselves or others, and to use it as a political tool to be able to do that. You know, I think it's a false assumption to be able to say, what do I think about merit base as opposed to some? I think it's great if there are people that are immigrants that have great skills that will contribute to the to our to our country. That's a wonderful thing if they are professionals. You know, it's great. Let's have the professionals, too. But let's not say when we're a country where most of us have come from people that are working people two or three generations ago people that are committed to lives in a country like America, that we're going to exclude them. Because why? Because they don't have a doctorate or a PhD? I mean, if we were to do that or think about that, I think about my mother and father who don't have a doctorate or a college education, but they're smartest, some of the smartest people I've ever known in my life. And they had enough vision to know how a system should work. You know, I always think about one of the things my father always said as we have this discussion about immigration. He told a story once about in World War II when he first came to Pocatello in the Air Army Corps when they built the Naval Ordnance Plant where he met my mother, that when the Air Army Corps came and they brought a cadre of African-American soldiers out from Biloxi, Mississippi, Richmond, Virginia, and Port Royal, Virginia, where my dad came from, that they were in the process of establishing this base in Pocatello. And they standardized the, all of the intelligence tests in, the, the, in America, the MMPI, all of these tests were established on military people because they had a captive audience. And in World War II, they did that test. And my dad tells a story about the fact that the tests all came back to the military. And the guy that knocked the top at the other end off was this African-American soldier. And, of course, the role of the African-American soldier in World War II was to wash the floors, clean the barracks, except for the Tuskegee Airmen that were a minority. Everybody else had labor jobs. They were jobs digging the trenches, doing the menial jobs. And my dad says they didn't know what to do with Harold. He had the highest IQ of all of us in the ranks. He said, and my dad said, and they had him mopping the floors. And I'll never forget this because I expected my father to say something like, this damn segregation, having a system with this hate like that, that's not what my dad said. He said, Tommy, just imagine the resource to the war effort that was lost there. He says, 
your Uncle Leslie may not have died at the end of World War II. If Harold, if they had fully utilized the gifts that he had as part of the effort for that war, hell, it could have been over, he said, over, he said in, in two years. But the idea about the stupidity of us not being able to embrace not only with diversity the wonderful things that come culturally, but the very powerful intellectual kinds of gifts that people that are being completely relegated and segregated, let alone to talk about women and what's contributed there that could be contributed. So my comment is that it's not an either-all thing, but I think that you have to have a thoughtful immigration program. First, don't act like we've never had one and not acknowledge the benefits that have been arrived, but certainly if you have families that come that have been vetted as we always have done and we, de and we don't politicize it, that we have the opportunity to honor families that come and want to come to America and to contribute in ways that they've always contributed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, <laughs> now, thank you very much. Now, you've, uh, you quoted the, um, the brilliant Dr. King and his famous statement that the arc of the universe bends toward justice. And you added that it needs some help. Let's tackle the question, the very difficult question about institutionalized racism in this country uh, by asking some specific questions. How do we begin, for example, to nurture a culture of tolerance or toleration in the United States? One of the things that we have to be able to do, I mean, it's, it's you know, kind of an easy thing to say that we have to have conversations, but we have to do more things like this. But I was reading an interesting book, and you might want to get this book. I'm just reading the second chapter, and you want to talk about race. That's written by an African-American woman from Seattle. It's an extraordinary book. But she talks about this much-used term now, privilege. And you hear white privilege and whatnot, and all of us. And she had an interesting thing to say about privilege. I'm getting at your question. Um, she says, we all face this idea of, of privilege. He says, the hardest thing is for us to accept it. We love the narrative. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I made it on my own. I worked hard, and I went to school, and I did these things. Says the act of being open to others and recognizing that one first, it's not a level playing field. Race aside, race aside, or or uh, issues of gender aside, but just the idea of being able to begin to ask the question: How am I privileged? How am I privileged? And because if I can recognize how I'm privileged, you can begin to think about how someone else may not be able to be privileged. For example, let me use myself as an example. I've had more and, people, more and more people say to me, well, look at you. You're a shining example. You're a success. You're blah, 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 blah. And I always feel so uncomfortable about that. And they say, look at you. Why can't more people do like you do, like you did? And it simply is a reaction to not wanting to face the privilege that they have themselves. I'm privileged because my grandmother, my mother's mother, 
went to Lincoln Normal College, one of the first historically black colleges, when it opened up back in the 1800s. And while when she came west, she had to be a domestic and she couldn't teach. She was a teacher and she taught all my uncles and all of my, and when they went to school and they came home, my grandmother, who was a school teacher, taught them, yeah, she was a pretty good teacher. And so my mother learned the value of education. My father, on my father's side, his mother was educated and they had the privilege in Virginia to have had someone early on before slavery was over to teach the first family to read. The power of reading did more after the emancipation than you can ever imagine because most whites or blacks couldn't read at that time. A gift of reading was a powerful thing. So from two sides of my family, I, become, I became privileged because both of my parents understood the value and the importance of education. And for all five of us, our siblings, every one of us were expected to go to school, go to college, and to graduate. And we all did. But for me to say, oh, look how I did this on my own. I did this on the backs of others that became privileged when you, just, when you realize that maybe 1% of the a population in America could even read when my forebears, my great-grandparents, had the opportunities through some fortune to be able to learn to read. I received that privilege that they had. And it multiplied because of the characteristics of my mother and father, what they believed in and what they read, not because they had degrees, but because they were gifted with the ability to read and a family that was strong and cohesive, which is another privilege. And so we have to ask the question when we establish this question about, well, why aren't they doing so well in school? Or what is this disparity between uh, these young African-American preschoolers and the way they act? They scare me. They seem like they're violent. What they are is different. And their experience is different. And somehow, how do we open this up to a dialogue to talk about these challenges that we have as a country? Is it first of all, to be able to open their hearts up and our minds up to say, well, let me think about this. Why are they saying that? Rather than reacting and saying, no, this is the reality I know. It's hard because, you know, everyone, we're invested in the idea of our success and how we had it. And it's hard for us to open our hearts up and think, well, maybe, maybe there's more to this than me just having done this. It forces us to face our whole narrative about who we are. But that is how you begin to be able to have the dialogue, deal with that uncomfortableness, and to be able to have conversations with friends of yours who may be even more closed to begin to think about how we open the door for conversations to acknowledge that there are such things as privilege. White privilege, black privilege, class privilege, but it does not minimize the fact that there are shapes of privilege in this country that have biased whole categories of people in our country. And the most intractable one in our country, given our history, is the issue of race, of black and white. What a dilemma we have. Intertwined like this from the beginning in ways that it's difficult for us to acknowledge our 
insidious and complex, but that can bring us down as a country if we can't figure out ways to be able to at least open our hearts and our minds and to our friends to be able to have the discussions like we're having here. Hope that excited. That's that's a wo- that's a wonderful wonderful response. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and while there are a number of important questions I want to get at, let's let's acknowledge that you're privileged because you had wonderful genes. You're the son of John and Idaho Purse. Uh, that's I mean, a tremendous. Besides thing. that point, yeah. right? That's right. Um, when we talk about confronting uh, racism in this nation, our minds race back to the tragedy in Charlottesville, Virginia, last summer with the rise once more, the KKK and the neo-Nazis, and a statement by the President of the United States that among the KKK and the neo-Nazis were fine people, good people. What are your thoughts about that kind of a statement and what it might suggest to the United States? Well, just, you know, all I could really say about that is it just makes the case of the need for the kind of vigilance that I tried to articulate today. It's not something that can allow us to be silent. It's not something that a person can, can walk away from and think, well, it's not my problem. Because that point of view, that kind of ignorance about who we are and about what our history is and what the implication of that kind of history is for a people, all of us together, is just so profoundly ignorant, you know, and I don't, I'm not, uh, that, 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 w- that it's hard to, to, um, to express the kind of concern except that it clearly articulates the urgency for the kind of discussions that we're having today because we know what that history has been and you look at at that church and what happens you simply have to think about you know if if you, you you simply have to ask the question in some of these cases what if Barack Obama had said some of the things that the president executive president executive says I mean just to get a chance a sense to to think about the different kind of ways we judge and value around issues of race is indicative of how sharp this issue is and how important it is and how urgent it is for us to have the conversations and to be stalwart about what the realities are here and what we know. Not simply because it's the right thing to do, but it's, it's integral for the future of our grandkids, for our democracy. For how we survive on this earth. By the way, uh, you were, of course, the first black elected official in Idaho yeah. when you served as a city council member in Pocatello yes. and then the mayor. Uh, did you have to face instances of, of racism or discrimination in that capacity as you made your way through those offices and perhaps uh, in other places around Idaho? Well, you know, it's it's uh, the reality is, is that um, the West and all of our communities, in many ways, have brought with them many of the elements 
that existed on a national basis in regard to issues of race. When my grandparents came here at the turn of the last century, my grandmother couldn't teach school, and she was a school teacher. I tell the story about the impact of the continuation of racism. My grandmother, who lived to be 102, told two stories. Um, I'll tell you this one, and then I'll tell you the second, and I'll share a song with you that I share with people about the second one. But the first one was my Uncle Wesley, my mother's brother who was two years older than her, her buddy, her running buddy of the nine kids. And Uncle Wesley was brilliant with math. My grandmother used to say, you know, he could have been a, he could have been a stockbroker or something. You know, he had a, a gift for numbers. And I was talking to my grandmother one day, and she says, well, Tommy, that's what my family called me, education's a double-edged sword. And I said, what do you mean, man? She said, well, I remember when your Uncle Wesley got out of high school, and he had such a gift with numbers, he could figure things out and everything, and the only job he could get when he got out, his war was coming on, was as a ditch digger. You know, and he was real smart with numbers and did all that stuff. And he went to work for this guy at digging ditches. He says he worked that week, and at the end of the week, he got his his pay. And he looked at his pay, and he went back, and he got a piece of paper, and he figured out how many hours he'd work and what the guy said he was going to pay him. And he went back to the guy and said, you said you were going to pay me this. I've worked these many hours, and this is all you give me. You owe me this. And the guy very nervously got his extra money and gave it to him. And my Uncle Wesley went back in. He was 18 years old, and all these other workers, most of whom could not read or write or count or anything, gave them their money and said, calculate mine. And, of course, Uncle Wesley did, and you know what happened. They were all shorted. But what happened to Uncle Wesley? He got fired. And my grandmother said, Uncle Wesley could not get a job at any of the labor, other labor places around there. She says, what do you suppose that taught your uncle about education, Tommy? Um, more closely, when you talk about racism and its cost and its price, Along with Uncle Wesley, I had Uncle Alfred, Uncle Lester, and Uncle Spuds, four uncles, all of whom died of alcoholism, all of whom were young African-American men that came up in the 30s, except for Wesley, he came up in the 40s, all of whom had been tutored by their mother, who was a school teacher. They could read at a high level, write at a high level, for their generation, highly educated men. What do you suppose it cost these men who were politically astute, could read, take tests, who were highly intelligent to walk the world of America and to have the doors shut on their dreams and their aspirations? I think of my Uncle Spuds, my mother's favorite and my favorite. We called him Uncle Spuds. He was Tracy Thompson. He's buried on, uh, up on Queen Anne Hill in Seattle. He died in the Bowery of Tuberculosis in Seattle. And I always think about Uncle Spuds. When he last saw him, all of his joy, but the way he was just so deeply tied in and addicted to alcohol, as all of them were. And all of them died. And I think about what might happen to people that aspire to things but can see that all the doors are shut. 
And so I sing a song about that. Can you hear that? Think about my Uncle Spuds in Washington. And my grandmother was born on the Muscogee Indian Reservation. Her mother was a Creek Indian. And I think about how um, closely our family was tied with the Choban Indians here in the southeastern Idaho. And I think about this song from, from Tom Russell. It's called Blue Wing. He had a blue wing tattooed on his shoulder. Might have been a bluebird, I don't know. He gets stone drunk, he talk about Alaska. Salmon boats and 45 below. He got that blue wing in Walla Walla prison. His cellmate there was little Willie John. Willie, he was once a great blues singer. Wing and Willie, he wrote him down this song. It's dark in here. Can't see the sky, but I look at this blue wing and I close my eyes and I fly away beyond these walls, far above the clouds, where the rain don't fall on a poor man's dreams. Oh yeah, on a poor man. They paroled old Blue Wing in August 1963. Moved on picking apples in the town of Wenatchee. But winter finally caught him in a rundown trailer park on the south side of Seattle, where the rains grow cold and dark. And he drank and he dreamed a vision when the salmon still ran free. And his father's fathers crossed that mighty Bering Sea. And the land still belonged to everyone. And there were still old songs left to sing. Now it's boiled down to this cheap hotel and a tattooed prison wing. It's dark in here. Can't see the sky. But I look at this blue wing and I close my eyes. And I fly away Beyond these walls Far above the clouds Where the rain don't fall On a poor man's dream Oh yeah On a poor man's dream He drank his way to L.A. That's where he died no one knew his Christian name, no one even cried, but I dreamt there was a funeral, a preacher in an old pine box. Halfway through the sermon, old Blue Wing began to talk, he said it's dark in here, can't see the sky, but I look at this Blue Wing and I close my eyes. And I fly away 
beyond these walls, far above the clouds, where the rainbows fall on a poor man's dream. Oh yeah, on a poor man's dream. Oh yeah, on a poor man's dream. Well, that was great. We're we're going to prevail on you upon you to to play some more. And you should know you have the distinction of being the first musician here in the history of the City Club of Idaho Falls. How about that? After 11 years, 11 years. I know what your next career is. That's pretty obvious. Next. That was great. Now, uh, Les, let me bring you that I think this is it. I think this is it. Let us know when you're on a television program performing, please. Let me bring you to a local problem because we'd very much like your insights and advice. A local church here has been besieged by vandals because it displays a banner that says Black Lives Matter. Now, it may be that some people who engage in vandalism, and they may do it for a variety of reasons, but some people who contest that banner and that phrase think that it's somehow an affront to, quote, all lives matter. What's your response to that kind of thought in reaction to uh, the phrase Black Lives Matter? First of all, you know, it seems to me that we should respond with the fundamental question of what does our democracy say about expression? And this is a church that has the right to make that expression. And I think that I have found at least that the reaction to, of course, all lives matter. But I would ask the question, what is uncomfortable with the people that have this reaction to this expression, given the context with which it became a reality around the issues of, of law enforcement and the death of African-American men in this country over the last few years? You can't separate the reality of what it's the, the purpose of that concern is and what is being expressed by those that either feel uncomfortable with it or maybe vandalizing it or however they're reacting. How The question is, how do you delve into that kind of a discussion and offer a fair forum whereby you can get at what the question and the issue is? And the expression of the sign is around one of the issues that is obviously a real issue in our country. So just like today as we talk and I answer questions, somehow, creatively, we have to figure out a mechanism to bring that issue to the table and have people stand up and say, I don't believe it. I don't think that ever happens. I think these people are always right and you're wrong, but not this kind of camouflage around the issue of the term black lives matters or all lives matters. Come on. We all understand what the issues are. We're intelligent people. It gets back to the same question. It's not that's not what it's about. It's about the issue that, that from which the sign sprung up from that we must get at to have the conversation. Thank you. We're gonna shift gears just slightly. Uh, let's talk about the state of Idaho for a moment and the issue of racism and discrimination of various stripes and colors. 
as you know, uh, the Idaho legislature has failed for some dozen years or so to take seriously the idea of adding to the Idaho Human Rights Act protection for gender or orientation and sexual identity, well known under the rubric, add the words. And our local government has failed thus far to enact an ordinance to provide for public accommodations protection, which was so critical during the height of the civil rights movement in the 1960s to uh, protect African Americans. Your thoughts on those, please. Well, my thoughts are, are um, pretty direct as far as that's concerned. The capacity even in the civil rights movement to recognize the gains that we talk about and that we know about, the laws that are in place on a federal basis. Many of us know what it took to get there in the 1960s. 1967 was when the Supreme Court ruled that interracial marriage was legal in America, 1967. I just use that as an example in terms of time. It is a process of the consensus well, will of a democracy to cause the kind of legislative change that have to occur. It was a conscious of America that looked at the reality of the depth of segregation and its, impl its implications, of the fire hoses in the South, of the realities of the expression of the impact that that had on young black kids in the South that turn the public opinion in the direction that it does. Those forces haven't changed. And when you have a legislative body that says, no, we aren't going to pass that, they must feel that they can make that decision that, no, we aren't going to pass that because there's not going to be any cost as an elected person. I mean, it hasn't changed. I have to say personally, it's heartbreaking for me as a third-generation Idahoan who comes home all the time and has a home here and loves this state dearly to see the kind of changes that have occurred in the other direction. I articulated in detail so many Idahoans from all over this country, from all over this state, from Malad to Craigmont, Idaho, or Coeur d'Alene, that were involved in the kinds of efforts that established the Human Rights Commission, leaders, uh, mammoth leaders in, in this state that have contributed so much to their communities and to our state that names that when you ask who were the leaders, the historic people of this state, were all people that were involved in what I identified. That's why I started the way I did, to remind us of that history. So when we see the half-stepping and the moonwalking around these issues now, it should be of deep concern. But the solutions aren't any different. You have to have the political will of the people that are enough concerned about it that raises the voices and with the numbers that are being are willing to be to be committed to make the change to express this to, to not be silent about it for the change to begin to occur or for people to be able to feel like maybe I ought to rethink my position on this it's as it has always been in our democracy everyone that's how it's done couple of questions uh, for you on this most recent tragedy in Parkland, Florida. Do you believe that uh, the, this nation is going to require something approximating the civil rights movement to overcome the influence of the National Rifle Association in opposing all reasonable gun regulation? 
Well, you know, you all need to know that I am, uh, I'm an Idaho boy through and through, you know. I have my guns. I'm home every fall hunting duck with my buddy Gary Ratzleff. And, you know, uh, there's probably few people that can talk um, ballistics better than I can for hunting rifles or whatever that may be. You know, I understand the importance of the issue of about the right to bear arms. But how do we get to look honestly at the way that the, the National Rifle Association has morphed from this educational, supportive organization around young people and, and adults learning gun safety and operating gun safety into an organization that has become one of the most powerful political entities in this country that is very strongly tied to the armament industry. I mean, when I say that, I'm not casting any aspersions. I'm just simply stating facts about what the politics are here. You have to call it for what it is, regardless of what you believe about the issue. Me and my buddy Gary talk about this issue, both having guns and believing in the right to carry guns. What about, you know, uh, um, combat weapons? All of these issues. Uh, why do people need them? The question raised. People make arguments for them. But in regard to the NRA, first of all, you need to recognize it's a political entity now, and, and it is deeply tied with one of our major commerce operations, and those are the people that supply arms and armament, and, and we can say whatever we want to say politically. Just look at what the reality is with the association. I mean, that's really all I have to say about that piece of it. How we get around the fact that we have to figure out some solution to make sure that people that are mentally ill, people that are not deeply depressed, people that are criminals, people that are terrorists, don't have access to, to arms to be able to walk in this door and mow us all down, is something that you would think would be something that we could find some common ground on. And I think you begin to have that common ground by stating it as it is and beginning to have the conversations among us about what, what are the basic fundamental kind of things that have to occur here and then finding the political weight with all of our people that are elected officials that are so afraid that you all out here are not going to vote for them if they even say, well, I think maybe we ought to have enhanced kind of review of people that are mentally ill are people that uh, that we could track in regard to their background that may be terrorists or that come into our country that have that kind of record to ensure it doesn't happen. I don't care where it is, but it has to stop somewhere. And you can't deal with this kind of a situation much longer because all of us are vulnerable in that way. And there's got to be some steps for that kind of, combi that kind of combination. And I'll tell you one thing. The way you do it is at least have the conversation with the people that are our elected officials here in the state of Washington and any of the states to make sure that they know you're concerned and that you recognize where the fear comes from what may be the steps that have to occur that make good public policy and safety for all of us. It's a complex issue, but you know we can call it and see it for what it is. And we know that we cannot continue, we cannot continue in our country with our young people facing 
the prospects of this kind of random terror and death. We've got to figure out how to do something to have conversations about it. Thank you. One more quick question on this subject. Uh, what's your reaction to the president's proposal to arm some teachers in public schools? Well, you know, I, I don't know. I listened to the teachers speak about it in Texas. I think out of a thousand some school district, there are 120 that have education programs for teachers that carry guns. Um, the the you know I, I I think that from my reaction, it's essential that we say what are the kind of safety mechanisms we can realistically put in place to secure our schools given this vulnerability that we have. Who are the professionals that we're going to have that are going to be there with that kind of responsibility? I don't think, I think it's difficult to be able to try to, to blur the role of teachers that have the role as the first educator with students with a, with a nine millimeter Glock, you know, and the, the expectation that not only am I going to have that role, but I'm going to have this role as well. And, and uh, it's, uh, I think that kind of clarity and the kind of professionalism and the kind of res safety responsibility from owning a gun is critical. And I think that we ought to designate the security people that do that and that it's clear about what the roles that individuals have are. That's Thank what you. I think. Now, Les, before we bring this program to, to a close, could we prevail upon you, please, to give us another song? Would you like to hear another song? This is a song by Guy Clark that I love. When my girls graduated from high school, I sang this song for them. Margaret. She's all dressed up with a flower sack cape wrapped all around her neck. She gets up on the garage. She's figuring what the heck. She screws her courage up so tight that the whole thing come unwound. Took a running start and bless her heart, she's headed for the ground. She's one of those that knows that life is just a leap of faith. So spread your arms and hold your breath and always trust. She's all grown up with a flower sack cape wrapped all around her dreams. She's full of piss and vinegar and she's busting at the seams. She licks her finger, she checks the wind, it's gonna be do or die. nothing boys she's pretty sure she can fly she's one of those that knows that life is 
just a leap of faith So spread your arms and hold your breath And always trust your cake She's old and gray with a flower sack cake Wrapped all around her head She's still jumping off the garage And she will until she's dead Friends around, they all say That she's acting like a kid She did not know that she could not fly so she did She's one of those That knows that life Is just a leap of faith Spread your arms And hold your breath And always Trust your king Margaret <laughs> <laughs> Come on, everybody. <laughs> okay. Well, Les, we can't thank you enough for this truly exceptional, inspiring program. And I dare say, with your musical ability, one of a kind. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give Les Purse another round of applause. Thank you so much. And remember, March 15th, featuring Mark Peters. We'll see you next month. The next City Club of Idaho Falls features Dr. Mark Peters, director of Idaho National Laboratory. The topic, securing the nation's energy future. March 15th, visit ifcityclub.com for details and for an archive of audio for all past City Club forums. This is KISU Pocatello, Idaho Falls, Rexburg.